The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. It's tricky, it's tricky. All right, but we're here to come around the world. And so uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those. Um, The passage that we're going to think about, the account that we're going to think about is um, in John's Gospel. And I've I've wanted to speak on this particular account ever since being asked a number of years ago to speak at somebody's wedding. And I I distinctly recall uh, trying to convince this particular bride-to-be that this passage that we're going to think about this morning would make a wonderful wedding day sermon. But who knows, trying to convince a bride-to-be to change something relating to her big day is a no-go zone. Who's with me? It's just a lost cause. And guess what? I lost the cause. And so I didn't get to preach on this text. And so that's why I'm really happy this morning because finally I've got the opportunity to preach on this passage. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, please take those and find John's Gospel, chapter 2. And we're going to read the first 11 verses of John 2. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's fine. If you don't own a Bible, that's fine. All the references are going to be on the screen for you. Uh, A few weeks ago, we, we launched a new sermon series anchored in the Gospel of John entitled Encountering Jesus. And in this series, we've, we've been doing that. We've been encountering Christ, and, and we've noticed that each encounter has communicated something unique about the person of Jesus, and also communicated something about the human condition. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' encounter with a skeptic by the name of Nathaniel in John chapter 1. And then two weeks ago, Anoj did a great job. He really did a fantastic job, Pastor Anoj, um, looking at Jesus' encounter with sufferers, Mary and Martha, as they lost their brother Lazarus. And then last week, he'll cover Jesus' encounter with sinners, one self-righteous, moral sinner, Nicodemus, John 3, and then a kind of an unrighteous, ostracized sinner, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Well, today we're in John 2, and John, the gospel writer, invites us to a wedding party like no other this morning, because here we are going to witness Jesus perform his very first miracle, his very first sign that not only rescues a failing party and a shamed couple, but also this sign points forward to the ultimate rescue, the rescue that we all need, and that is rescue from our shame before God. And so with that in view, I've entitled this sermon, Jesus and the Shamed. So verse 1 of John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. It's rather odd. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, the MC, in other words. So they did. 
And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants um, who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, I want to draw out, highlight three things about this special, remarkable wedding party. Three things. Number one, the invitation. Number two, the interruption, and the bulk of the message will be looking at, investigating the interruption to this wedding party. And then thirdly, 30 seconds to a minute, the implication. Invitation, interruption, implication. The opening two verses, John tells us that Jesus and his friends, his disciples, were invited to a wedding in a small place called Cana of Galilee. And Cana was approximately situated about 12 kilometers from Jesus' hometown. Now, if we're going to be moved and blown away by what actually transpires here at this wedding party, we need to understand ancient weddings a bit better, first century Jewish weddings. You see, unlike our modern day weddings where mostly the focus is on the individual couple getting married, their happiness, you know, it's their day, ancient weddings weren't like that. The focus of ancient weddings was on the broader community because of what weddings meant for them. Weddings meant the binding together of the community and also weddings meant the securing of prosperity for future generations. And so in other words, the, the wedding festival, the wedding party, the wedding ceremony was more about the community and less about the individual couple. And this made perfect sense because the bigger, the stronger, the more numerous families were in a town, that meant its economy, that town's economy was better and the military was stronger because, you see, everyone prospered. And, and, and the knock-on effect of all this meant that this particular view of marriage uh, meant that parties and wedding parties uh, were a much bigger deal than what they are today. And, and, of course, the knock-on effect of that meant that ancient weddings, first century Jewish weddings, went on and on and on and on, sometimes lasting for a week, a whole week. And of course, that meant that the guests had to stick around. Right? Like, unlike us, you know, with modern weddings, you know, uh, we tend to duck out after the cutting of the cake, right? Or, or after the speeches. Like, yeah. And especially when you've got young kids, you can start blaming them. Like, ah, oh, my kids, they're young. We've got to get them home. And you leave the party. You couldn't do that in the first century. You had to stay for the duration of the wedding party, which meant something. Guests had to be well looked after. The catering had to be exquisite. The hospitality had to be top march. And and, and for a Jewish wedding, that meant a lot of fine cheese and a lot of fine wine. Now, Now, who's enjoying this party so far? Right. And so, so Jesus is at this wedding. He's been invited to this wedding. And, and maybe two or three days into the wedding party, out of the blue, shock, horror, there's an interruption. And it's not a minor interruption. It's a massive, huge, significant interruption. John tells us in verse, in, in verse 3, they ran out of wine. They ran out of wine. Now, now for us, you know, our wedding's like, so what? No wine? I just reach for a Corona or, or grab a cocktail or orange juice. No big deal. But back then, wine, oh, 
If you ran out of wine, it was pretty much the end of the show. It was the end of the party. Why? Because of what wine symbolized. What did it symbolize? It symbolized joyful community, social prosperity. And, and, and in particular, in this shame on a culture, to run out of wine was a social catastrophe. And it would have been extremely embarrassing for this newlywed couple. And so essentially, no wine meant no partay. And, and no partay meant no community unity, and which meant no uh, security for future generations. This was a massive thing. In fact, one commentator, it's quite uh, amusing, uh, Bruce Milne, in his commentary on John's Gospel, he points out that not having wine in ancient weddings sometimes led to lawsuits. The, the, the newlywed couple would be sued. Can you imagine us doing that? They're out of wine, no grog, we're going to sue you. I mean, that's what it was like. And, and so because of that, Mary, she rocks up to Jesus and, and maybe she wants to be, you know, save the couple being embarrassed. She wants the party to continue. And so possibly she's being very discreet. And so maybe she did something like this. No wine, Jesus. We're, we're out. We're dry. Now, now. On a serious note. What Jesus does in response communicates so much about why he came and, and about what he offers and about who he is. And so we're just going to bypass verse 4 for a moment. It is the pivotal verse, verse 4, but we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Because the first thing I want to highlight is that Jesus responds to this wedding party interruption by literally saving this party from going belly up. Because in verse 5, you see, there must have been something in Jesus' demeanor that communicated to Mary that Jesus was going to do something. He was about to save the day because she turns to the servants, the, 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 the wedding helpers, and she says, whatever he tells you to do, do. And what does he tell them to do? Well, he tells them to fill up these six stone water jars. Now, when the term jar, when you think of the term jar or jars, what comes into your mind? What pops into your mind? A small jar, right? Like maybe a lolly jar or a cookie jar. Because I'm English, I think of jam jars. And all those jars have something in common. They're all tiny. They're all small. But these jars that John is talking about were not small. They were massive. He goes out of his way to tell us that each of them contained anywhere up to 20 to 30 gallons of water. All right, That's, that's 80 to 120 litres of fluid, each particular jar. So let's be conservative. There were six. That's almost 500 litres of liquid. That's a heck of a lot of water. And, and, and they're all kind of overflowing. And what does Jesus do with all this water? He turns it into wine. He turns it into wine. Enough wine to keep five weddings going. Like Seriously, a lot of wine. And listen, not cheap cooking red wine. Not, not kind of clean skin type wine. This is choice wine, the finest wine. And we know that because when the MC, when he sips it, he's like, oh my, where's the bridegroom? And he calls the bridegroom and essentially he says to him, mate, your reputation's on the line here. Like seriously, this should come out first, not last. Your guests are going to think you're a killjoy. Your guests are going to think you're stingy. This is the most exquisite wine I've ever tasted. Now, here's the question, the big question that we need to raise at this stage. What does this sign, because it is a sign, verse 11, John tells us that. What does this sign of turning water into wine 
point to? What does it represent? Because signs do that, don't they? They they point beyond themselves. And so, yes, Jesus is saving the day. Yes, Jesus is saving this couple from being embarrassed. Yes, 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 yes. But what does this sign point to? Does it point to something beyond itself? And I believe it does. You see, it's likely that Jesus had Isaiah 25 on his mind as he performed this wedding rescuing miracle. Isaiah 25. You see, Isaiah 25, Isaiah the prophet, he looks into the future and and he sees this day of God's coming kingdom, this day of of, of healing, this day of prosperity. And this is what he says. And I want you to know the similarities with the wedding at Cana. He says this, this is Isaiah. He says, on that mountain, whenever you hear or read the term mountain in scripture, it's always referring to the kingdom of God. He says, on that mountain, the the Lord Almighty will prepare, what? A, a A feast of rich food for all peoples. All peoples, not just the Jews, but everyone. A banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the what? Just like the wine at Cana, right? On this mountain, look, listen, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace. That is, he will deal with shame from all the earth the Lord has spoken. And you see, in this sign, it's as if Jesus is saying, in this sign of turning water into wine, it's like he's saying this, yes, this is what I came to do. This is what I came to do. I came to usher in the eternal party. I came to usher in eternal laughter, free from death and free from disgrace and free from tears and free from brokenness. In other words, I came to bring about the age of wine, the kingdom of wine, joyful community and festivity for all eternity. This is what the sign of turning water into wine actually points forward to, the coming kingdom. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, when Samwise Gamkey, one of the the hobbits, about my height, um, when he wakes up after realising that he is still alive, um, that he had been rescued from the the fires of Mount Doom, he, he then sees Gandalf alive. And he says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I, I thought you were dead. And then he says, but then I thought I was dead. And then he says to Gandalf, he says, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? You see, this sign of turning water into wine is pointing forward to that. When Jesus returns, he's going to turn everything sad, everything broken, everything miserable, and it's all going to come untrue. In other words, when Jesus returns, he's going to turn the water of human brokenness and misery into the wine of endless festivity and happiness. And this is what's represented. This is what's symbolized in this act, in this miracle. And so so this is why Jesus came. He came to bring restoration. But but this leads to a follow-up question. Jesus came to bring restoration. But listen, why did he have to bring restoration? Why did he have to rescue this world from going belly up? Well, I want you to notice something in this miracle. It's a small detail, but it's a critical, vital detail about this miracle. Yes, Jesus is, a, is about to save the day. He's about to rescue this, this couple. But, but how will he do it? How will he do it? Verse 6. 
by filling up jars used by the Jews for ceremonial, there's the key phrase, ceremonial washing. That's how. Let me explain. Let me back up a bit. In Old Testament Judaism, they, they, they had a lot of regulations and guidelines that, that required physical cleansing. And so worshippers under the old system, under Judaism, couldn't just approach the presence of God, couldn't just walk into the presence of, of God. Uh, they had to go through these, these, these rites and the various washings. And of course, God was trying to teach them something, and us, that the real issue is not outer cleansing, outer dirt. I don't think God's got an issue with dirt. I mean, he created the stuff. Anyhow, it's not really the issue. The issue was he wanted to teach them something about their hearts that they had to wash, 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 and wash again because he wanted them to know that their hearts had been defiled, that their inner selves had been polluted because of sin, and that they had this shame that needed uh, dealing and and addressing. And, And so when Jesus here uses these jars used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, what he's saying is this. He's saying, this is the reason why I came into the world. I came to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament ceremonial laws and what they pointed to. And what did they point to? Well, I've just mentioned inner cleansing, wholeness, cleansing from shame, cleansing from defilement, cleansing from brokenness. And and so here's Jesus saying, this is why I came. This is the real issue with the world. Yeah, I've come to restore it, but the reason why I need to restore it is because of sin. And all that sin does, it defiles, it stains, it pollutes, it corrupts, it breaks. It causes brokenness and misery, and this is why I came, because of sin, because of sin. Now, a lot of modern people, when they hear preachers, pastors talk about sin, they, they tend to roll their eyes and, oh, okay, you know, sin. Um, I remember trying to convince one of my best friends in the UK that, you know, we are all sinful, and um, he said to me, essentially, Lewis, I'm not a sinner, you know, and he he didn't quite say it that way, but you know what I'm saying. Um, he said, Lewis, I'm not, I'm not a sinner. I haven't murdered anyone. I, I'm not a rapist. I'm not a sinner. And, and a lot of people view sin that way. It's just these big things, right? These huge things. And, and, and maybe you're like that today. Maybe you can think, you know, I'm not too sure about sin. Well, well, let me put it this way. We will never really understand the joy of what Jesus brings until we first understand sin. If, if, until we have an understanding, a kind of working definition of what sin is. So let me put it this way. I believe that intuitively, deeply, we all know that there is something wrong with us, deep down inside. We, we know that there's something amiss, there's something broken, there's something not right with us. I mean, why do we work so hard? Do you ever stop to think about that? Why do we work so hard? Fingers to the bone. Yeah, okay, we've got bills to pay, we've got kids to provide for and all that. Yes, yes, yes. But there are other reasons why we work so hard. Why? Why? Well, why do we feel it's so necessary to be right all the time? You found yourself in a discussion, a heated debate, they're called arguments, and you know you're losing ground, you're losing the argument. I had one of those the other week, the other day, should I say, and I knew I was losing ground. And, And you know what it's like, right? You know you're losing, but yet you still try and say things to try and win the discussion. You've got no hope. You know you've got no hope. You just try. Why? Because you need to be right. And, and if you feel like you've lost the argument and you leave that situation, what do you do? I tell you what I do. I think of all the ways I should have argued. Oh, yes, that's right. I should have said that. Oh, all right. If that, if that argument or that debate resurfaces, that's what I'm going to say next time. And I will be, you know, I'll put that trump card down and I'll win. What, why? 
Why do we find it so hard to say, you know what? I'm being silly, I'm being an idiot, I'm wrong, you're right. Why do we find it so hard? What about this one? Why do we worry about how people perceive us all the time? How people view us and see us, our reputation, our image. Why? Why do we get so worried? Why, why? Well, let me suggest this to you. It's because deep down inside, we know that there's something wrong. There's something broken. And so we try and prove ourselves. We try and validate, as it were, our own lives, our own existence by, by, by working hard to achieve various things and, 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 and trying to be right and, and kind of justifying our, our lives. So who's, who's familiar with the Rocky movies? Yeah, Rocky. Um, Bill Barr, Rocky. I mean, when he speaks, he sounds like he's half drunk all the time. Rocky. But in the very first Rocky movie, there's this telling scene of what I'm trying to communicate here. He's just about to get into the ring with Apollo Creed, who is the world champ. And Apollo Creed has never, ever lost a boxing match. And Rocky, he's just, you know, a new boxer on the scene. And so he's on the bed with, with, with his, um, he's next to his girlfriend, and Adrian. Adrian. And, and, and it's the night before the big fight. And he turns to her and he says, no one's ever, got, I'm not going to do the voice, all right, don't worry. No, 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 no. You, you won't understand what I'm saying. You just think some drunken guy's up there saying, no, I'm not going to do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. I can, I can, I can do Forrest Gump, but I can't do Rocky. And he says, no, no one's ever got, stop it. No one's ever gone the distance. No one's ever gone the d- distance with Creed. He says, no one's, no one's gone 15 rounds with Creed. He said, uh, Creed may open my head. He says, he says, but when the bell goes and I'm still standing, he says, I will know. Here comes the crunch. I will know that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Remember that? You see, what is he saying? He's saying, you know what? My life depends on me going the distance. I'm going to validate my existence. I'm going to prove myself to myself and to others and to, to maybe those who are no longer a part of my life. I'm going to prove uh, myself to all those people by just going the distance. Then I will know, I will know that I'm not a bum, that my life mattered, that I amounted to something. And I think one of the reasons why we work so hard to, to have good, respectable kids is so that you know, we can validate our lives sometimes. So people say, there goes a good parent. We'll go, yeah, you know, I, I did well. I'm not a bum. And why we work so hard to be successful, we work so hard to have material things so that we kind of feel that we, we amount to something, that we are not a bum, just like Rocky Balboa. You see, Jesus came, listen, to be our validation. He came to liberate us from sin and that shame and that brokenness of trying to hide, hide, hide by trying to achieve, 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 doing these things to, to kind of conceal and mask really the inner issue of our heart. He came to liberate us. He came to free us from the need to prove ourselves to others because in him we are proved and approved before God Almighty. And so this is why he had to come because of sin. And sin is the issue. That's what's caused the world to uh, fall into despair. And, and that's why he came. And that's what this sign represents. Now, lastly, last question, the most important question. How did Jesus plan to bring about this restoration? 
We've considered why he came, what he came to do, bring restoration, what the issue is sin. But, but how did he plan to bring this restoration about? Well, let's go back to this wedding party interruption. We know what's happened in verse 3, this whole wine issue. But then in verse 4, the pivotal verse, Jesus turns to his mother Mary. She's saying they need wine. And he says these words, woman, why do you involve me? Why do you, woman, why do you involve me? Now, listen. If, if I were to call my mum woman, and not just once, maybe a few times, she would hit me over the head a few times. And all you mums out there, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, you know, if your kid, even a grown-up kid, your grown-up kid calls you woman, you're like, what, what did you just say? Don't be so disrespectful. All right. Now, it sounds like Jesus is being disrespectful here, right? Woman. But listen, I don't think he is. The Greek term that stands behind this English word here, term woman, is not necessarily communicating disrespect. And we know that because Jesus uses this exact same word on the cross. When he's on the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother, Mary, there looking back at him. And she's brokenhearted because her son is being executed in the most grotesque way. And his heart starts to melt and break for her. And so out of compassion, he looks at her and he says, what? Woman. He says, woman, here is your son. Son, talking to John, his disciple, here is your mother. And so, no, I don't think necessarily he's being disrespectful. However, he is clearly bothered by something. Who's with me? He is bothered by something. We know by, by the way he responds, something is up. Something is pressing upon his mind. Something is weighing him down. And what is that something? Well, he tells us what that something is. He says, woman, why do you involve me? And then what does he, what does he add? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is intriguing. This is very, very insightful. Every time in John's gospel, Jesus uses the term hour, hour, hour. He's always talking about his death on the cross. Hour, death, hour, death, hour, death on the cross. Every single time. So now, can you, can you see how odd and even confusing this must have been for Mary? She rocks up, says, no wine. He says, why are you telling me I'm not ready to die yet? It's like, what, what, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're speaking a different language. Is there any connection between this simple, straightforward request for wine and, and your death? Oh, yes. There's a profound connection. Think of the symbolism. Think of the symbolism. We've already seen and established in this sermon what wine symbolized in this Jewish context. It symbolized joyful community, social, global prosperity. And how is Jesus going to bring that about? How is he going to turn shame into joy? How is he going to turn pain into lasting happiness? How, how, how? His hour. His death on the cross. You see, it's as if Jesus is sitting here at this wedding and he's looking far, far past, far, far beyond the bride and the groom. He's looking past all the festivities and he's thinking, he's thinking to himself, you know, yes, I can bring festive joy to this broken world. Oh yes, I can bring cleansing and renewal to fallen humanity, shamed, guilt-ridden humanity. Yes, yes, but I'm going to have to die to do it. I'm going to have to die to do it. There's the connection. There's the connection. You see, Nat and I, when we go to other people's weddings, 
often we're prompted to think about our own wedding. Who's with me in that experience? Especially when the newlyweds, they, they say their vows and I'm prompted to think about our own wedding and I often reflect on um, the amount of songs that we sung at our wedding and often say to that, oh man, I think we sung too many songs. Like we had like six songs in our wedding service. Five? Oh, it was heaps. All right, okay, hold on. Hold on a minute. This always happens in the car as well, driving home from the wedding. So we had three, but they just went on forever, okay? Oh, you're happy with that? All right. And it was really hot. And, and, and I was like, maybe we just you know, had less singing, but it was great. And, and then, of course, I, I certainly remember the vows we made to each other in the presence of others, in the presence of God. And I certainly remember, you know, that thing in a <laughs> my first ever kiss with my new wife. And I, and I remember the lame, corny dad joke that I shared at our wedding reception. It was so bad, no one laughed. No one like, can, can you believe that? Me telling a joke, no one laughing? Yeah, I know you can't believe that. Except one person, Natalie's uncle. He was the only one who laughed. But that, but that didn't count because he laughs at everything, even things that are not funny. Other people's weddings remind me of my own wedding. And I think Jesus here is at this wedding. I really believe he's at this wedding. You know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about his own wedding. He's thinking about his own wedding. And he's thinking about what Revelation twice mentions as the wedding supper or the wedding party of the Lamb, referring to himself, Jesus the Lamb. And he's Jesus. He's at this wedding and he's looking beyond all the festivities and he's thinking about his bride. He's thinking about his church. And he's thinking about having his bride safe in his embrace for all eternity. But he realizes the only way that this is ever going to happen is that if he, when his arms are outstretched and hammered to that cross, they're dealing with disgrace, our disgrace because of sin, our shame, our brokenness. And now on the cross, him being shamed, completely exposed, naked, shamed. Him on the cross being our uncleansiness, being polluted because of our sin, taking that on himself on the cross so that he could have us for all eternity in his embrace. Can you see? This is the connection. And this is what's going on. And this is how he was going to bring about this incredible restoration and this renewal of the world and our hearts and our lives dealing with our pollution and sin. Can you see the implication of this? We, we, th- we thought about the invitation and the, the interruption, but what about the implication? Last minute. The implication of all that. What is it? Verse 11. It says, this is the first sign through which Jesus, what? Revealed or disclosed or showcased or exhibited his glory. You know what that term glory means here? It means beauty. It means exquisite worth, exquisite wonder. And when you realize, when we see what Jesus is doing here, what this sign of turning water into wine actually represents, we will see his wonder and his beauty. And I I pray that we would do what his disciples went on to do. What did they do? They believed in him, meaning they treasured him. They put it together. Oh, Jesus, you're not just a moral teacher. You're so much more than that. You're the saviour. You're my saviour. That's the implication here. Jesus is the saviour. Yes, of the world, but hey, make it more personal. He is your saviour. Your saviour. He went to the cross for you. Make it personal if you're here today. And he wants to encounter you as you sit there on your chair. He wants to encounter you. He wants you to know his incredible, powerful 
liberating, transformative love. That he was disgraced so that you would know eternal love and grace. Yeah? That's the beauty of it. And when you see that, you're, you're beautiful, Jesus. You did that for me. You did that for me. And so look, I encourage you. Stop looking for validation in things, your work, your reputation. Stop trying to find satisfaction in relationships and your parenting or anything else for that matter. All those things will give you quick spikes of pleasure, quick spikes of satisfaction, but there will be a lull on the other side and then you will just need something else and something else and something else. And there will always be frustration. You will never find it. Jesus came to be your validation. Jesus came to be your saviour and your security. And so he wants you to know him today. Amen. How about we close our eyes and pray? Thanks, team. Worship team. I'm just going to pray. And if you're here today and something in the message, something in this account has resonated with you, I just want you to acknowledge that by just slipping up your hand. If, if you want to know more about the person of Jesus and who he is and why he came and how you can become his follower and know his embrace, also I want you to slip up your hand too as, as the musos play and and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray. I'm just gonna give you a minute. Thank you. I see your hand. for your hour and what that means for us. We'll never have to face the cross because you did for us, Lord. You absorbed all the judgment upon our flaws and sins. You dealt with our shame and pollution caused by sin by being polluted for us on the cross. You're alive now. You're alive now. You're no longer on the cross. You're alive and you're well. And you're the reigning, pure King. And in you, Lord, we are made pure. We're made whole. And you cancel the dead against us. And you clothe us with purity. And we're made whole and new and clean. Fresh. Fresh. And so, Lord God, I want to pray for those who lifted their hands pray that they would know today, right here this morning, your incredible goodness. That Lord God, you would lead them on. They're on a journey and I just pray they would make that definitive decision to follow you, to turn away from trusting in religion or trusting in their morality, trusting in their efforts and, and, and just rest 
Rest in you. Rest in your accomplishments. Rest in your finished work on the cross. Finished work. Lord God, I pray that. And they would know, Lord God, the, the joy of forgiveness and the joy of wholeness. Father God, I pray for everyone else, Lord, here today. Lord, I pray that this truth would really grip our hearts. That we would be really stirred. That we would not be hearers only, but doers, Lord God. That we would celebrate your goodness. We would have this hope that looks forward beyond the grave. The wedding supper of the Lamb. No tears, no fears, no disgrace, no shame, no hostility. Lord, I pray, cause our hearts to be flooded with hope and the joy hope brings. Can I ask you to stand, church? Let's, let's really conclude this, this service by, by worshipping. That's always the fitting response.